Chapter Twenty Two of Domestic Manners of the Americans by Francis Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two: Small Landed Proprietors, Slavery. I now, for the first time since I crossed the mountains, found myself sufficiently at leisure to look deliberately round and mark the different aspects of men and things in a region which, though bearing the same name and calling itself the same land, was in many respects as different from the one I had left as Amsterdam from St. Petersburg. There every man was straining and struggling, and striving for himself, heaven knows. Here every white man was waited upon more or less by a slave. There the newly cleared lands, rich with vegetable manure accumulated for ages, demanded the slightest labour to return the richest produce. Where the plough entered, crops the most abundant followed but where it came not, no spot of native verdure, no native fruits, no native flowers cheered the eye. All was close, dark, stifling forest. Here the soil had long ago yielded its first fruits. Much that had been cleared and cultivated for tobacco, the most exhausting of crops, by the English, required careful and laborious husbandry to produce any return, and much was left as sheep-walks. It was in these spots that the natural bounty of the soil and climate was displayed by the innumerable wild fruits and flowers which made every dingle and bushy dell seem a garden. On entering the cottages I found also a great difference in the manner of living. Here, indeed, there were few cottages without a slave, but there were fewer still that had their beefsteak and onions for breakfast, dinner, and supper. The herrings of the bountiful Potomac supply their place. These are excellent relish, as they call it, when salted, and if I mistake not, are sold at a dollar and a half per thousand. Whiskey, however, flows everywhere at the same fatally cheap rate of twenty cents, about one shilling, the gallon, and its hideous effects are visible on the countenance of every man you meet. The class of people the most completely unlike any existing in England are those who, farming their old freehold estates, and often possessing several slaves, yet live with as few of the refinements, and I think I may say, with as few of the comforts of life, as the very poorest English peasant. When in Maryland I went into the houses of several of these small proprietors, and remained long enough and looked and listened sufficiently to obtain a tolerably correct idea of their manner of living. One of these families consisted of a young man, his wife, two children, a female slave, and two young lads, slaves also. The farm belonged to the wife, and, I was told, consisted of about three hundred acres of indifferent land, but all cleared. The house was built of wood, and looked as if the three slaves might have overturned it, had they pushed hard against the gable end. It contained one room of about twelve feet square, and another adjoining it, hardly larger than a closet. This second chamber was the lodging-room of the white part of the family. Above these rooms was a loft without windows, where, I was told, the staying company who visited them were lodged. Near this mansion was a shanty, a black hole without any window, which served as kitchen and all other offices, and also as the lodging of the blacks. We were invited to take tea with this family, and readily consented to do so. The furniture of the room was one heavy huge table, and about six wooden chairs. When we arrived, the lady was in rather a dusky dishabille, 
but she vehemently urged us to be seated, and then retired into the closet-chamber above mentioned, whence she continued to address to us from behind the door all kinds of genteel country visiting talk, and at length emerged upon us in a smart new dress. Her female slave set out the great table, and placed upon it cups of the very coarsest blue ware, a little brown sugar in one, and a tiny drop of milk in another, no butter, though the lady assured us that she had a dairy and two cows. Instead of butter, she hoped we would fix a little relish with our crackers, in ancient English, eat salt meat and dry biscuits. Such was the fare, and for guests that certainly were intended to be honoured. I could not help recalling the delicious repasts which I remembered to have enjoyed at little dairy farms in England, not possessed, but rented, and at high rents, too, where the clean, fresh-coloured, bustling mistress herself skimmed the delicious cream, herself spread the yellow butter on the delightful brown loaf, and placed her curds and her junket, and all the delicate treasures of her dairy before us, and then, with hospitable pride, placed herself at her board, and added the more delicate relish of good tea and good cream. I remembered all this, and did not think the difference atoned for by the dignity of having my cup handed to me by a slave. The lady I now visited, however, greatly surpassed my quondam friends in the refinement of her conversation. She ambled through the whole time the visit lasted, in a sort of elegantly mincing familiar style of gossip, which I think she was imitating from some novel, for I was told she was a great novel-reader, and left all household occupations to be performed by her slaves. To say she addressed us in a tone of equality will give no adequate idea of her manner. I am persuaded that no misgiving on the subject ever entered her head. She told us that their estate was her dividend of her father's property. She had married a first cousin, who was as fine a gentleman as she was a lady, and as idle, preferring hunting, as they call shooting, to any other occupation. The consequence was that but a very small portion of the dividend was cultivated, and their poverty was extreme. The slaves, particularly the lads, were considerably more than half naked, but the air of dignity with which, in the midst of all this misery, the lanky lady said to one of the young negroes, "'Attend to your young master, Lycurgus,' must have been heard to be conceived in the full extent of its mock heroic. Another dwelling of one of these landed proprietors was a hovel as wretched as the one above described, but there was more industry within it. The gentleman, indeed, was himself one of the numerous tribe of regular whisky-drinkers, and was rarely capable of any work, but he had a family of twelve children, who, with their skeleton mother, worked much harder than I ever saw negroes do. They were accordingly much less elegant and much less poor than the heiress, yet they lived with no appearance of comfort, and with, I believe, nothing beyond the necessaries of life. One proof of this was that the worthless father would not suffer them to raise, even by their own labour, any garden vegetables, and they lived upon their fat pork, salt fish, and corn-bread, summer and winter, without variation. This, I found, was frequently the case among the farmers. The luxury of whisky is more appreciated by the men than all the green delicacies from the garden, and if all the ready money goes for that, and their darling chewing tobacco, none can be spent by the wife for garden seeds 
and as far as my observation extended, I never saw any American menage where the toast and no toast question would have been decided in favour of the lady. There are some small farmers who hold their lands as tenants, but these are by no means numerous. They do not pay their rent in money, but by making over a third of the produce to the owner, a mode of paying rent considerably more advantageous to the tenant than to the landlord, but the difficulty of obtaining money in payment, excepting for mere retail articles, is very great in all American transactions. I can pay in produce, is the offer which I was assured is constantly made on all occasions, and if rejected, then I guess we can't deal, is the usual rejoinder. This statement does not, of course, include the great merchants of great cities, but refers to the mass of the people scattered over the country. It has, indeed, been my object in speaking of the customs of the people to give an idea of what they are generally. The effect produced upon English people by the sight of slavery in every direction is very new and not very agreeable, and it is not the less painfully felt from hearing upon every breeze the mocking words, All men are born free and equal. One must be in the heart of American slavery fully to appreciate that wonderfully fine passage in Moore's epistle to Lord Viscount Forbes, which describes, perhaps more faithfully, as well as more powerfully, the political state of America than anything that has ever been written upon it. O oh, freedom, freedom, how I hate thy cant! Not eastern bombast, nor the savage rant of purpled madmen were they numbered all, from Roman Nero down to Russian Paul, could grate upon my ear so mean, so base, as the rank jargon of that factious race, who poor of heart and prodigal of words, born to be slaves and struggling to be lords, but pant for license while they spurn control, and shout for rights with rapine in their soul, who can with patience for a moment see the medley mass of pride and misery, of whips and charters, manacles and rights, of slaving blacks and democratic whites, of all the piebald polity that reigns in free confusion o'er Columbia's plains? To think that man, thou just and gentle God, should stand before thee with a tyrant's rod, or creatures like himself with soul from thee, yet dare to boast of perfect liberty. Away, away, I'd rather hold my neck, by doubtful tenure from a sultan's beck, in climes where liberty has scarce been named, nor any right but that of ruling claimed, than thus to live where bastard freedom waves her fustian flag in mockery o'er slaves, where, motley laws admitting no degree, between the vilely slaved and madly free, alike the bondage and the licensed suit, the brute made ruler and the man made brute. The condition of domestic slaves, however, does not generally appear to be bad, but the ugly feature is that should it be so, they have no power to change it. I have seen much kind attention bestowed upon the health of slaves, but it is on these occasions impossible to forget that did this attention fail, a valuable piece of property would be endangered. Unhappily the slaves, too, know this, and the consequence is that real kindly feeling very rarely can exist between the parties. It is said that slaves born in a family are attached to the children of it who have grown up with them. 
This may be the case where the petty acts of infant tyranny have not been sufficient to conquer the kindly feeling naturally produced by long and early association. And this sort of attachment may last as long as the slave can be kept in that state of profound ignorance which precludes reflection. The law of Virginia has taken care of this. The state legislators may truly be said to be wiser in their generation than the children of light, and they ensure their safety by forbidding light to enter among them. By the law of Virginia it is penal to teach any slave to read, and it is penal to be aiding and abetting in the act of instructing them. This law speaks volumes. Domestic slaves are, generally speaking, tolerably well-fed and decently clothed, and the mode in which they are lodged seems a matter of great indifference to them. They are rarely exposed to the lash, and they are carefully nursed in sickness. These are the favourable features of the situation. The sad one is that they may be sent to the South and sold. This is the dread of all the slaves north of Louisiana. The sugar plantations, and more than all, the rice grounds of Georgia and the Carolinas, are the terror of American Negroes, and well they may be, for they open an early grave to thousands, and to avoid loss it is needful to make their previous labour pay their value. There is something in the system of breeding and rearing negroes in the northern states, for the express purpose of sending them to be sold in the south, that strikes painfully against every feeling of justice, mercy, or common humanity. During my residence in America, I became perfectly persuaded that the state of a domestic slave in a gentleman's family was preferable to that of a hired American help, both because they are more cared for and valued, and because their condition being born with them, their spirits do not struggle against it with that pining discontent which seems the lot of all free servants in America. But the case is widely different with such as, in their own persons, or those of their children, loved in vain, are exposed to the dreadful traffic above mentioned. In what is their condition better than that of the kidnapped negroes on the coast of Africa? Of the horror in which this enforced migration is held, I had a strong proof during our stay in Virginia. The father of a young slave, who belonged to the lady with whom we boarded, was destined to this fate, and within an hour after it was made known to him, he sharpened the hatchet with which he had been felling timber, and with his right hand severed his left from the wrist. But this is a subject on which I do not mean to dilate. It has been lately treated most judiciously by a far abler hand. See Captain Hall's Travels in America. Its effects on the moral feelings and external manners of the people are all I wish to observe upon, and these are unquestionably most injurious. The same man who beards his wealthier and more educated neighbour with the bullying boast, I'm as good as you, turns to his slave and knocks him down, if the furrow he has ploughed, or the log he has felled, please not this stickler for equality. There is a glaring falsehood on the very surface of such a man's principles that is revolting. It is not among the higher classes that the possession of slaves produces the worst effects. Among the poorer class of landholders, who are often as profoundly ignorant as the negroes they own, the effect of this plenary power over males and females is most demoralizing, and the kind of coarse, not to say brutal, authority which is exercised furnishes the most disgusting moral spectacle I ever witnessed. 
In all ranks, however, it appeared to me that the greatest and best feelings of the human heart were paralyzed by the relative positions of slave and owner. The characters, the hearts of children, are irretrievably injured by it. In Virginia we boarded for some time in a family consisting of a widow and her four daughters, and I there witnessed a scene strongly indicative of the effect I have mentioned. A young female slave, about eight years of age, had found on the shelf of a cupboard a biscuit, temptingly buttered, of which she had eaten a considerable portion before she was observed. The butter had been copiously sprinkled with arsenic for the destruction of rats, and had been thus most incautiously placed by one of the young ladies of the family. As soon as the circumstance was known, the lady of the house came to consult me as to what had best be done for the poor child. I immediately mixed a large cup of mustard and water, the most rapid of all emetics, and got the little girl to swallow it. The desired effect was instantly produced, but the poor child, partly from nausea, and partly from the terror of hearing her death proclaimed by half a dozen voices round her, trembled so violently that I thought she would fall. I sat down in the court where we were standing, and as a matter of course took the little sufferer in my lap. I observed a general titter among the white members of the family, while the black stood aloof and looked stupefied. The youngest of the family, a little girl about the age of the young slave, after gazing at me for a few moments in utter astonishment, exclaimed, "'My! If Mrs. Trollope has not taken her in her lap and wiped her nasty mouth! Why, I would not have touched her mouth for two hundred dollars!' The little slave was laid on a bed, and I returned to my own apartments. Some time afterwards I sent to inquire for her, and learnt that she was in great pain. I immediately went myself to inquire farther, when another young lady of the family, the one by whose imprudence the accident had occurred, met my anxious inquiries with ill-suppressed mirth, told me they had sent for the doctor, and then burst into uncontrollable laughter. The idea of really sympathizing in the sufferings of a slave appeared to them as absurd as weeping over a calf that had been slaughtered by the butcher. The daughters of my hostess were as lovely as features and complexion could make them, but the neutralizing effect of this total want of feeling upon youth and beauty must be witnessed to be conceived. There seems in general a strong feeling throughout America that none of the negro race can be trusted, and as fear, according to their notions, is the only principle by which a slave can be actuated, it is not wonderful if the imputation be just. But I am persuaded that were a different mode of moral treatment pursued, most important and beneficial consequences would result from it. Negroes are very sensible to kindness, and might, I think, be rendered more profitably obedient by the practice of it towards them than by any other mode of discipline whatever. To emancipate them entirely throughout the Union cannot, I conceive, be thought of consistently with the safety of the country, but were the possibility of amelioration taken into the consideration of the legislature with all the wisdom, justice, and mercy that could be brought to bear upon it, the negro population of the Union might cease to be a terror, and their situation no longer be a subject either of indignation or of pity. I observed everywhere throughout the slave states that all articles which can be taken and consumed are constantly locked up, and in large families, where the extent of the establishment multiplies the number of keys, these are deposited in a basket, 
and consigned to the care of a little negress who was constantly seen following her mistress's steps with this basket on her arm and this not only that the keys may be always at hand but because should they be out of sight one moment that moment would infallibly be employed for purposes of plunder it seemed to me in this instance as in many others that the close personal attendance of these sable shadows must be very annoying but whenever i mentioned it i was assured that no such feeling existed and that use rendered them almost unconscious of their presence i had indeed frequent opportunities of observing this habitual indifference to the presence of their slaves they talk of them of their condition of their faculties of their conduct exactly as if they were incapable of hearing i once saw a young lady who when seated at table between a male and a female was induced by her modesty to intrude on the chair of her female neighbour to avoid the indelicacy of touching the elbow of a man i once saw this very young lady lacing her stays with the most perfect composure before a negro footman a virginian gentleman told me that ever since he had married he had been accustomed to have a negro girl sleep in the same chamber with himself and his wife i asked for what purpose this nocturnal attendance was necessary good heavens was the reply if i wanted a glass of water during the night what would become of me End of chapter twenty two